Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. If you have a Bible, let's open it to Romans chapter 8, where we left off a couple weeks ago and where we find ourselves this morning as we're working through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome written some 2,000 years ago, one of the greatest letters ever written, one of the mountain peaks of Scripture, and this morning we find ourselves in, in a, a portion of this letter which is, is it's really paradigm forming. Now, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God. I mean, I believe every little jot and tittle is important, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it has a purpose. Even the lists of names in the Old Testament, which, which you may be tempted to breeze through rather briskly in your Bible reading plan, I think have a part in God's specific purposes in giving His Word to His people. And that, that may be just that people are important. That may just be what you're take from that list of names. But everything has its purpose. Much of what we've been working through in Romans up to this point has been zooming in on how a holy God can make sinful people his people, how he can bring them back into fellowship with himself through not their good deeds or efforts, but through the reconciling work of his son Jesus on the cross. That's the great message of the letter of Romans. It's the high point of scripture. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the point of all things. And much of Romans up to this point has been zooming in on the nuts and bolts and specifics of how God justifies, makes righteous sinners who have no hope apart from his intervening, initiating, sovereign grace. But this text this morning, in the middle of Romans chapter 8, it's as if Paul is zooming back out and he's giving us a kind of cosmic picture of how all things work. Now, um, I've shared with you before, I think, that I love BBC America's Planet Earth. I have watched, and this is no exaggeration, they just came out with season two and just ended a couple Saturdays ago. It would come on Saturday nights at like eight or nine o'clock. And man, I was glued to the TV. Jennifer can tell you. I'm just, I, I've watched everything, not only the first planet Earth, but the second planet Earth and the blue planet one and blue planet two. I've watched every episode at least two or three times. And I am fascinated. There's this one episode where there's this sloth that is apparently living in these trees in these islands in the Caribbean, and this sloth swims. These trees are kind of submerged, and it swims from tree to tree looking for food and a girlfriend. <laughs> and I am mesmerized by the nuts and bolts of creation. But also on my web browser, I have the NASA website saved where it gives pictures of the universe. And there are times when I will go to my web browser and I will spend more time than I would like to admit staring at pictures of the universe. And this passage, unlike the nuts and the bolts of how salvation works up to this point, is a kind of zoom out. It's, it's, it's not the specific intricacies of how God justifies sinners but it's the zoom out of how all things work together and gives us a kind of paradigm through which to look at life. So with that, let's read verses 18 through 20 of Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the rack in front of you. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you if you don't own one. My plan is to read this text and then we're going to work our way back through it. Paul writes in verse 18, Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All right, this is a paragraph. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, these are glorious, global, all-reaching, magnificent words. We need your help to understand them. In this room, there are believers to whom this passage applies. This is a promise for believers, for those who are trusting by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, in the finished work of your Son to make them right with you. I pray that this verse would serve as a kind of HD lens through which we can categorize the suffering of this present age for your people. And then there are people in this room who do not yet know you. I pray, God, that you would take this passage and my, my feeble words to try and explain it to my brothers and sisters and friends here and you would use all of that to bring life to their dead hearts so that they can see Jesus and so that this text can apply to them as well. And I pray that you do all of this for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of all those that you've called to yourself that are here this morning and don't yet believe. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Up to this point in Romans chapter 8, Paul, Paul has been making some pretty spectacular promises. He says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in verses 3 and 4 that the law of sin and death has been answered, that Christ has set us free from this law of sin and death. He says that the Spirit of God now dwells in us and that there is a promised resurrection, a redemption, a, a promised future that awaits those who have been made alive by God and indwelled with His Holy Spirit. And then in the passage that we looked at before Easter Sunday, verses 14 through 17, he, he even goes further and he says that it wasn't just a, a distant transaction between you and a holy God who is your creator, but it's personal. God is a father. He has not merely justified you, he's adopted you and he's made you his own. And the spirit that he put inside you when he saved you now enables you to cry out like a child would cry out in the most simplest and loving of ways, Abba, Father. And then in verse 17 that we ended on two weeks ago, everything was going great up to that point. And then in verse 17, he adds this one condition caveat, lest we think that this means that all of life is going to be easy from here on out. He says in verse 17 that you're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I think now our text this morning, verses 18 through 25, is Paul answering the potential objection that he's heading off at the pass, that if everything that he said in verses 1 through 17 is true about how God has, what he has done for us in Christ, and how he has loved us and put his spirit in us, and he's called us his children, and he's made us joint heirs with Christ, who is the creator and the inheritor of all things. If that is the case, then why do Christians still deal with suffering and pain in this life? That's the dilemma 
And that's the objection that Paul is, is answering here, and this is what he takes up in verse 18. So let's just work our way back through it. He says there in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So just a couple things to note on that verse. He says the suffering of this present time. Friends, I don't think I have to convince any of us of this, but suffering is part of this life for everyone. No one escapes it. No one. Everybody in this room to some degree will suffer. Now some of us will suffer much greater than others. Some of us will suffer in different ways. Some suffering may be physical and external. Other suffering may be primarily internal and emotional. But all people, because we live in a broken world and because we are part of this brokenness with our own fallen natures before it's been renewed and redeemed, even then we still have to deal with the residue of this broken world both inside and out of us. Suffering is a part of this present time. Friends, just, this just kind of undermines any health and wealth gospel that goes too far. And he says that this, listen to this, this is, just, this is a sweeping and stunning statement. Let's learn to le- read the Bible slowly. He says that this suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's not worth comparing. Friends, read that slowly and think about it for a moment. You know when the Bible in the Old Testament in the Psalms every now and again you'll see that word that says selah? That means stop and chew on that. Think about it. Take that in. Consider this. This is a time when we need to think about this text. Think about, think about your own suffering. Think about the worst thing that you are dealing with right now or maybe have endured in your life. And then think about the worst suffering of all believers in this world. Friends, our hearts would melt if we just read stories of things that even now our brothers and sisters in the world are are enduring. And just as a pastor of a local church, and I have the great privilege to sit with people and hear about some of the suffering in their life. Friends, if we read the account of these stories, even things that are going on within people's lives that are in this room right now, it is terrible. It is tragic. It is horrific suffering. And Paul is saying, he's saying all of that, not, he's not saying that the glory that will be revealed to us will will eke it out at the end. He's saying that there is no comparison between that and whatever suffering you're enduring in this present age. Just take in what Paul is saying there. And then he says that this glory, will, which outweighs anything that we're presently going through or any Christian has ever gone through, helps us endure because it points us to a sure and certain future. And it's going to be revealed to us, this glory that we get It's ours, and we're going to look in a bit about what this glory is. It's not that we're made much of, but we see the final full completion of our salvation. Verse 19, he says, for the creation. So he's he's been speaking about us in verse 18, believers. And now in verse 19, he zooms out. Verse 19, for the creation. So it's not just us. creation, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of, of the sons of God. This phrasing here in the original language is so descriptive. The creation waits with eager longing. The, the, the sense of that phrase, eager longing, as, it, as, as if an audience is on its tippy toes looking at something, beholding with anticipation something that is coming. It's like uh, I grew up on the Mexican border, and you know what a big deal was in my hometown is a, a thing called quinceañera which is the Spanish word for your 15th birthday. And it was the coming out of a young woman into adulthood. Maybe a better, a better picture might be like at a wedding when all of the groomsmen and the bridesmaids have come down the aisle and the cute little kids that may or may not make it all the way down. 
You know, there's always somebody designated to handle the little cousin that might just freak out in the middle of the wedding. And then there's that moment when everything stops and the bridal march starts playing and everybody looks at the back of the sanctuary waiting for the doors to open and the bride, who is dressed in her glorious, beautiful wedding dress, to walk down the aisle. Everybody is looking at the bride. And, and that's the picture here that creation, this physical order, think about the, just the cosmic, th- these, are deep, these are deep thoughts. Paul is saying that creation, he personalizes it, personalizes it, is standing on its tippy toes waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, we are the bride waiting for that wedding day and, and the process that we are going through now Even though we are saved, we are being saved, and we will finally fully be saved, the creation is standing on its tippy toes waiting for yours and mine's sanctification to be complete on that day when God pulls the curtain and says, it's over, it's done. Come to me, my bride. (laughs) Man, does that not tell you that what we are doing here is important? This dusty little crosspoint church with all of our little warts, along with every other Bible-believing church in the world, is the central point of the universe. One person gets it, we're going to move on. (laughs) Oh, friends, your sanctification is the primary thing that God is about because, as we'll see in a moment, it is the display of his glory to cosmic powers. So we shouldn't shuffle in here half asleep with a grump. Uh, don't get me started. Don't get me started. <laughs> all, right, all right. Verse 20. For the creation. Now this, 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 these are deep waters. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. <laughs> this, this, this language mirrors the language that we see in the beginning of the Bible in, in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, in fact, I think it might be helpful for us just to read a little bit of Genesis chapter 3. And what's happened in Genesis chapter 3 is God has created everything good. He's created it very good. He's created Adam and Eve to be his stewards over all of creation. And look what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Verse 17 and 18, I think we may have it on the screen here. And he's saying to Adam what the consequences of his lack of leadership, his sin in the life and protection of his wife Eve, who was deceived by the serpent, and now sin has entered humanity and it's fractured everything. And he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. See that futility? The ground is cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And he goes on to say that your face is going to sweat, and it's going to be hard, and you're going to have to work and toil. So now, not only, you just think about about what's happened here in the garden, is that Adam and Eve, as our first parents, and by the way, everybody in this room, regardless of the the pigmentation of your skin, or the language of your forefathers, or the state or country that you're from, all of us have been, have, are descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all brothers and sisters. There's really just one race, the human race. And all of us are descendants of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve's sin, their, their rebellion of God, brought into the world not only spiritual death for all of their progeny, which is us, so we now inherit the, the gene, the We inherit the death that they brought in, and in a strange way, we read about this in Romans chapter 5, that through 
through sin, death entered the world, we were all sort of there represented as, a, as Adam as our head. We are in Adam. We're born into that sickness. But not only did it spread in humanity, it spread to all creation is what's going on here in Romans 8. And all of creation is fractured. But... Listen to this. It's not, and this is where it gets, this is where we have to tread lightly. It's not as if the Trinity was up there in heaven and had created all things in Genesis 1 and 2, and then Adam and Eve sinned, and now not only were their lives out of joint and they were excommunicated from the garden, and now the creation has fallen and groans, but all of this, now this is where we have to tread lightly, all of this happened not in a way that it surprised God, but it says, look at verse 20 again of our text in Romans 8. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. So, you know, Adam and Eve did this. It wasn't, you know, creation, garden, the Garden of Eden is just hanging out, bearing fruit. Buffalo are running. Plants are growing. Bees are a-buzzing. It's a good Tuesday in the garden and then all of the sudden, bam, it gets hit up across the side of the head. And Adam and Eve sin. And now everything's broken. So the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of Adam's sin, but because of him who subjected it. We might think at this point, well, Adam is, 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 is the one that's doing all this. And, and God is just like, oh my gosh, this is not going according to plan. But look at the motivation of this subjugation in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So listen, friends, think about this. Think about what verses 20 and 21 are saying, that behind the fall of mankind, there's somebody that's actually in charge of all things, that's bringing all things to pass in a way for his glory and the final full good of his children who he will save out of that fall. Do you, do you have a picture of God like that? That's a radically God-centered view of the universe, and that is a utterly biblical view of the universe. God is not the author of sin. He's not culpable for it. Adam is. We are. But somehow, in a mysterious way, God's over it all. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So still he's focusing on creation. Remember verse 18 started with us, and then he zooms out to all creation, showing how everything, really, all of God's creation, the pinnacle of it, is even reacting to what's going on in the redemption of his people in the gospel. And creation, still, he's talking about here, is groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That, that's why there are hurricanes and earthquakes, and that's why there are cancer cells and traffic accidents, and all manner of tragedy. And it's groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, I speak about treading lightly. I just want to offer a couple thoughts about childbirth here. Uh, I have never given birth, but I've been in the room four times when it's happened. And I know that it's painful but one of the things that allows a mother in labor to endure the pain is that she knows something that's worth it is coming. And that's the analogy that Paul is using here. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says about our lives. Listen to what Jesus says in John 16. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, John 16, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus is saying that really, he's, he's talking about the Christian life here it is a kind of pain of childbirth, and we are longing forward to that day when we will see him again. That's the picture here. Verse 23, back to Romans 8. Paul now zooms back into us, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, we could preach a sermon just on verse 23, but let me just handle it quickly here. L- listen to what it says. It's not only creation that's groaning, but we groan too. And, and we shouldn't be shocked by this groaning. This groaning is not a characteristic of people who don't know Jesus. It is a characteristic of people who do know Jesus because he says here, those who groan are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's a biblical way of saying that it's the Spirit that indwells you that we looked at early in Romans 8. It's yours. It's, it's the down payment. It's the guarantee. It's God's earnest money. He resides in you, and he promises that he will finally and fully renovate the house that he's put the down payment on. Even those people, Christians, we still groan. We groan because we see the remaining corruption in our own lives. That's what Romans 7 was about. We, 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 oh wretched man that I am, Paul cries out. We're in the middle of a spiritual battle that isn't so much raging out here. It's raging in our own hearts. And we groan over our own incomplete sanctification. Don't, in fact, I think that that is an indicator of maturity. A person who groans over their incomplete sanctification. And this is a strange, but I think good and beautiful dynamic that happens in the Christian life. The more mature you get in the Lord, the more Bible you know, the more, the more stronger your striving is for him, in a paradoxical sort of way, the more you will lament your remaining sin and sometimes we will wrongly interpret that is we feel like we're worse off now than we were when we first were born again. But let me give you a kind of paradigm to say that in a sense, that may be actually an indication of maturity in your life because you're more and more aware, you're more and more sensitive to the things of the Lord and you are groaning. You're groaning because you're aware and you're frustrated and you're longing for the final completion of your salvation. You're looking forward to that day. That day's becoming clearer. That day when there will be no more lust. There will be no more pornography. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more racism. There will be no more sin within or without. And as that day approaches, we groan for it. And then what it says, we are eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons. Well, according to verse 15 of Romans 8, we've already been adopted. But we are in this kind of tension where we're already adopted, but we're longing forward to that day when we will finally fully be adopted. So that's the tension of the Christian life. Do you see that? We have it already, but we've not yet seen it fully realized in our life. Friends, that explains a lot. Let me just read, you know, I read this verse all the time when we talk about this truth intention in the Christian life. Hebrews 10, verse 14. It mesmerizes me every time I read it. Hebrews 10, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus's work on the cross by which he makes people new and removes the guilt of their sin and satisfies God's holiness and saves people. Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, speaking of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his crucifixion on the cross, his wrath-bearing substitute, for by a single offering, he has perfected, past tense, you're already perfected, for all time, those who are being sanctified. 
Well, if you've already been perfected, why do you need to be sanctified? Because we live in this present time where we are groaning and looking forward to that which is already ours. Friends, that explains so much. That explains why redeemed, born-again children of God in this room can do drastically stupid things. You feel me? All right. And then it says, I'm, I'm as a man approaching 50 real quick like, I am encouraged by the end of this, not only is it a kind of spiritual redemption, it's the redemption of our bodies. We could spend a lot of time going on to this. I mean, read 1 Corinthians 15. We get up from the grave. Our dust is redeemed and we are made new. And the glory that will be revealed to us is a physical resurrection whereby we become like Jesus in his physical resurrection. It says that we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. So we're not going to be, friends, if you think of heaven as us floating around as kind of disembodied spirits with little cupid robes, levitating on a cloud with a harp, stop it and read your Bible. (laughs) We will be glorified, resurrected, real people that you can touch, and we will be like a resurrected, glorified Jesus. In fact, that's what 1 John 3, 1 and 2 says, Paul sort of quoted it earlier. Let me just read one verse more. 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, I think that's a reference clearly to Jesus' second coming, when everything is made right, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. (laughs) Oh, man. Because we shall see him as he is. That's the glory of verse 18 that is revealed to us Jesus comes back, so we're God's children right now. We're perfected for all time. There's no sin that is out there, even in our future life on this earth, that is waiting to be atoned for, because Jesus has canceled it all. He's made you right. You cannot be more justified next week than you are today if you're in Christ, because you're God's child now. But you will groan, and that groaning is producing something in you, a longing for that day when Jesus will pull back the curtain, the music will play, the bride will walk down the aisle, and when the bride sees the groom, his glory is so great that she is transformed, and she becomes like him. That's that's you if you're in Christ. So, if that's the case, what can this life do to me? If God is for us, who can be against us? And we're going to get into that later on in a few weeks in Romans 8, 31 through 39. Oh, praise God. Verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So what he's saying is, you can't, you can't see this right now, dear one, is what Paul's encouragement is to the Roman Christians who are approaching about a decade away from very severe persecution in the Roman Empire by the Roman Emperor Nero, who about a decade or so from when this is written will start to skin Christians alive, skin them, torture them, and will use their bodies as fuel, the burning of their bodies as fuel to light the lamps in the streets of Rome. And so you're, you're going to go through a lot. 
as you deal with all of the stuff that's still in you. And you can't see it yet, but that's not what hope is based on. Hope is having faith in the promise of God that we grasp, that we behold, not perfectly, but in faith that God is who he says he is and that he will bring his children safely home. And Paul's point in Romans 18 through 25 is that bringing you safely home does not mean that you will get there via easy street, but you will go to glory via suffering, but let that produce in you more hope, more hope, and wait for it with patience. So let me conclude with just three reflections about suffering for the Christian very quickly. The first is this. The suffering, I just mentioned this, suffering is the pathway to glory for the believer. It, it, it is not something that we should be surprised at. A servant is not greater than his master. Jesus suffered, we will suffer in some measure. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4 that we should not be surprised at this suffering. The apostles write in Acts that it is through tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. But here's the point I want us to see is that this suffering has a designed purpose and that purpose is that suffering is our servant, not our master. And friends, this is not some impersonal biblical doctrine. But think of it this way. What is God doing in our suffering? It's not God not loving us well. It's God unlocking our grip on this world. That's what suffering does in the life of a Christian. It strengthens us and causes us to long for the world that is to come. I've shared this story with you um, several times, and it comes to my mind every time I think about this idea of suffering. Um, years ago, uh, Paul and I used to work out together in the morning, and we would go to the gym, and um, I'd wait for Paul to show up, and then we'd, then we'd work out. <laughs> so I was, cheap, I was a cheap shot, Paul. I'm sorry, man. I was, you don't have a mic. and a, um, you know, let, me, let me say something positive about Paul. And I would, like, get stronger, and, and Paul would kind of, like, appease me like I was getting stronger. And then I think I was doing, and then he would just put a whole bunch of weight on there and just do, like, a, a lot more weight than I could ever do. Um, and that was basically what we did. Uh, and there was this man that used to bring his son to the gym. And this child clearly suffered from severe, I think it was probably cerebral palsy. And he was bound to a wheelchair. And he was, his muscles were atrophied and tightened up. And the dad would bring this son to the gym faithfully several times a week, and what he would do with his son is he would take his son out of the chair and he would really manually kind of make, he would stretch his son's body. And with his hand, over his son's hand, he would stretch his atrophied muscles and, and, and he would stretch them on these cables and, and you could hear the shouts of pain from this young boy all the way across the gym. You could hear, he even, even his vocal cords were affected by his palsy and you could hear him just groan. And I thought that, that's such a picture of how God is with his children. It was God who was subjecting this son to futility. It was the father who was doing it to his son. But he was doing it for his good. If, if we would have seen that in any other circumstance, and we didn't know the relationship between those two people, we would have tackled that man and said, what are you doing to this boy? But when you realize that it's the son, it's the father who loves that boy more than anything, you realize that there are gracious, good purposes behind this inflicted suffering. 
And that's the picture here. Suffering is the pathway to glory, not because God is messing with us, but because, because God loves us and he is trying to unlock our hands from the things of this world so that he can lock those same hands to himself. And yes, if this is your question, God could do it another way. But friends, he hasn't. And you're the clay, he's the potter. I I, I said that too forcefully. I don't want I don't want I don't want to beat you over the head with that. Like he's he's the he has he has good good things. I, I should have said that softer, like a father. He's he's the potter. You're the clay. So trust his good purposes. Truth number two: all suffering is under God's control. All of it. All of it. And if all suffering is under God's control, if he's the one ultimately who's been doing the subjecting for his sovereign purpose, then I I can face tomorrow. I can face it. Listen to this great confession from the Protestant Reformation back all the way in the 1500s. It's called the Belgic Confession of Faith. Article 13, the doctrine of God's providence. This is is a 500-year-old statement that came out of the Protestant Reformation in the late 1500s. I've read it before. I love it. It's so good. It's so encouraging. And it was written by a guy whose name was Guido, <laughs> which I just love. Guido de Berez. He was apparently a Belgic reformer. And his name was Guido. <laughs> he, along with other reformers, formulated this great confession about God's providence. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Friends, that's what I think Romans 8 is saying. God's behind it all for our good purposes. Yet, God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible. That's that's an important word. It's incomprehensible. In a while, we're going to get to Romans 11, verse 36, that says, or verse 33 through 36, that says that his ways are past finding out. Friends, we can't connect all of the dots on why things happen the way they do and how God is behind them. He is incomprehensible in the way he works, but be assured that he's working. That, That wasn't Guido. That was my... Commentary on Guido's work. That he arranges and does his work very well and justly even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. He uses them as pawns in his chess game for his glory. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and that is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, (laughs) we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of, his graciously, of our graciously, gracious heavenly father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. And by the way, when he does let them hurt us, they're only serving his sovereign end in our life. For that reason, we reject the damnable air of the Epicureans, some philosophers of the day, who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Friends, all suffering, from the least to the worst, is under God's control. Which then brings us to the final point. Suffering produces, suffering has a purpose. I think the pinnacle of that purpose is it produces hope which points the world to Jesus. 
Let's, let's tie in what Paul is saying in Romans 8 with what he said in Romans 5. And I think Romans 5 through 8, chapters 5 through 8 are a kind of unit where Paul is explaining a great grand global point. And he says he starts off this whole block in his letter in Romans 5 verses 1 through 5 with this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Okay, so those are magnificent truths. He's saying that we were sinners. Listen, listen carefully. This is the gospel. He's saying that we were sinners. We needed to be made righteous, but we can't be made righteous because we are by nature sinners. But God sends Jesus to bear his wrath on the cross to extinguish it, to cancel it, to satisfy it, and absorb the wrath of God. Then Jesus rises from the grave to defeat death, hell, sin, and the grave, and then makes God's people alive. He gives them a new heart, and with that new heart comes the gift of faith, by which way they can now believe in Jesus, and through the faith that they exercise in Jesus, through no merit of their own, because it's given by God to them, they are justified, they're made right. And that faith that they have is not just a nebulous faith that things will go well, but their faith is centered on the sacrifice that Jesus has made. So we are justified, we're made right through faith. And then he says in verse 3, not only that... You'd expect it to keep going up, but now he gets very real here. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, which has been our theme in Romans 8, 18 through 20, 25. Being a Christian means you can rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces hope, produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So do you see what's going on here? All of this is happening in us to produce hope in us. And then Jesus takes our lives, our hope-filled, suffering-enduring lives, as he leaves us here in this life to endure it, and he puts us on display before creation and creation knows what's going on in the process of our sanctification through suffering. And God is using our suffering that will end in our final glorification to be a kind of witness and aroma to other people. And he uses that sweet smelling fragrance of the gospel to bring life to dead hearts and make them alive. That's the Christian life. That's God's purpose behind your suffering, to produce more of Christ in you so that more of Christ in you would be seen so that God can bring more people to Christ. Friends, do you, do you categorize your suffering in this way? One of the most beautiful things that I think has ever been written outside of Scripture is this poem by this man named William Cooper. And William Cooper was a man that dealt with mental illness. He was probably schizophrenic and bipolar. But he was one of the greatest hymn writers in the history of the church. He wrote hundreds of hymns that we sing uh, even today, 200 years later. He lived in the 1700s, and he was a dear friend of John Newton. You know John Newton was the man who wrote Amazing Grace. Before John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, he was a captain of a ship. He was a slave trader. He was a wicked, racist man who was involved in the transatlantic slave trade. But he heard the gospel, and God radically converted John Newton and made him a pastor and used John Newton's writings to be some of the most beautiful truths that are preserved in the history of the church. John Newton was a friend of William Cooper, and he knew that William Cooper, Cooper suffered tremendously because of his mental illness. And for years, William Cooper lived with his pastor, John Newton, who cared one-on-one -on -one for this man who was bipolar and schizophrenic and suicidal for decades. But yet, 
even though he was in this, this state of mental illness, God used William Cooper to be one of the great hymn writers in the Christian church. And in a moment of clarity, William Cooper wrote one of the most beautiful hymns and poems that has ever been written, and it's called God Works in a Mysterious Way. This is what William Cooper says. Now, it's spelled Cowper, but it's pronounced Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Lord, these are glorious, monumental truths. And we are weak and fragile people. Give us a glimpse of these truths. Transform us from one degree of glory to another by this truth. That the suffering of this present age is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us and in us and through us as you make us like Jesus, finally and fully. May that serve as a fire in the belly of struggling Christians in this room to fuel their sanctification and their fight against sin and their encouragement in a remaining broken world for you. And may that beautiful truth open up the eyes of any unbelievers in this room so that they can see that their only hope is Jesus. I pray that you'd do it for your glory and for the good of your people. Amen.